So I'd invite you to grab your Bibles, open them to the Gospel according to Luke. Uh, So Luke chapter 5 is where we will be this morning, and I'd ask you to stand with us as we give attention to the reading of God's Word. We will be in Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 12 and continuing on through verse 26. Luke 5, beginning in verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. This is the word of the Lord. How's that? Oh, my sound's fine. You guys can sit down. Um, I've been telling everybody I, uh, I left a lot on the cutting room floor. It's still going to be a long message. So. <laughs> so let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you begging you, asking you to reach down today, to touch us, to heal us, to move in our hearts, to move in our inner lives so that we align more with your divine presence. So please be with me as I speak. Please be with my hearers as they hear. And let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it had been seven days. Seven days and now an eighth since he had obeyed the words of the miracle worker and showed himself to the priest. The first day of a new week. 
It was the first day of new creation, as far as he was concerned. Now, it had been seven days since the priest examined him and offered the two birds on his behalf. One killed, its blood mixed with hyssop and scarlet yarn in a bowl of water, the symbols of decay and death that once ravaged his skin, now connected to a dead bird. Its blood was used to cleanse him. The other bird, sprinkled with the same blood that was applied to the leper, was freed. The leper was released from his curse and shaved from head to toe. He was released to go back to his town, but not yet back into his home. On the eighth day, he'd been prepared for the temple courts. At odds with the miracle worker's command to tell no one, he told his whole family. I mean, what else was he going to do as he sat outside of his house for seven days? Seemed like a forgivable offense. And now, they were here with him in the temple courts, celebrating and honoring the cleansed man's restoration. They witnessed as the lambs were sacrificed, and the blood of one applied to his right earlobe, his right thumb, and his right big toe. He was ready to hear God's word, to do God's work, and to walk in God's ways. Those same extremities were then anointed with the oil of God's blessing. He'd been restored to sacred space, restored to community, and now on the eighth day, he was heading home. When he arrived back in town, nothing seemed the same. No longer was he clothed in shame, hair disheveled, wearing the funerary clothes commanded of him by the law. He was now clothed in new clothes. His whole body was shaved a second time. He was as hairless as the day he came into the world. He'd just been born again. The sun beat down on his freshly shaved head, and the breeze kissed his ears with a delightful cool. The skin that used to chafe with agony with every subtle movement now moved with freedom. But it wasn't the breeze or the sun or even the freedom that grabbed his attention now. It was the man he recognized, but as though only through a dream. I mean, surely this couldn't be the paralytic he'd seen carried around by that group of friends for so long. And what was astonishing, though, was that this cleansed man was quickly distracted from the walking man's legs, and he saw his face. He saw a brightness in his eyes that made him forget about the sun beating down on his head. They walked past each other, staring at each other like two friends sworn to a secrecy that they were bound to betray. But now, as he crossed the threshold of his home, he was surprised by his own inner thoughts. He suddenly found his heart yearned, even fainted, for the courts of the Lord. What will I do now? He asked himself. I suppose, the thought came to him, that I can just go back next week and offer my sacrifices. He stopped to consider, to offer myself. Um, really quick, I have a lot of reverb up here. Are you guys good? Okay, cool. Um, then I'm just going to ignore it. Um, so really quick caveat, uh, I obviously have no idea if anything like what I just described ever happened. I mean, in, in all likelihood, the, the cleansed leper and the walking paralytic were not even from the same town. So why start this way? <laughs> you know, I, wa I wanted to set the melody for today's message, a melody concerning shame and guilt, forgiveness and freedom, holy blood and new creation. You see, I, I have this conviction, 
And that's that the more that our imaginations are captured by the Word of God, the more that our inner lives are shaped by Jesus himself, the more we will see his power to change us and transform us. And that's simply because as I stand up here today, I assume that your inner life is as important to you as my inner life is to me. And that's because I read, and, and because I read the Word of God, I know that both of our inner lives are important to God. Okay? Now, this is a borrowed thought. I'm borrowing it from Andrew Clavin, but it's a good thought, so I'm going to own it. And so I start this way because when I perceive God's big picture as it plays out in these inspired words in front of us, I find that my heart is increasingly gripped by his grandeur, his wisdom, and his love, and I'd like to think that it has a transformative effect on me, even if at times I still feel the scars of my own formerly leprous heart. Now, I've mentioned it already, but I hope today that God deals with us and our inner lives, but that it doesn't stay there that it doesn't just merely result in a whole group of us sitting together thinking good thoughts in proximity with one another. But I hope that as he grips our inner lives, he then moves us outward in a display of his power, his forgiveness, and his love to a lost and hurting world. And why does this world hurt so much? And if we're honest with ourselves, why do we so often hurt? It's because so often... We are bound by the chains of shame and guilt. And so we'll see today how Jesus overcomes those chains as he interacts with the shame of a leper and the guilt of a paralytic. So look with me in Luke chapter 5, verse 12, where it says this. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, in in Luke's arrangement here, we see that Jesus is staying mission-focused, right? As after he called his first disciples at the beginning of this chapter, he moves on to the next city where he meets a leper. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention here some obvious parallels between the leper and the episode we just saw with Simon Peter. Before the scene closed on Simon, what did he look like? Like the leper... He's fallen down at the feet of Jesus, and he's calling him Lord. One significant difference, though, is that Simon Peter is begging Jesus to depart from him, and even though the Mosaic law would, the Mosaic law would say that this leper's condition should have begged Jesus to leave him alone as well, instead what we see is this leper is drawing near. What's Jesus to do? And really, what is it about leprosy that begged people to stay away. Now, first things first, um, this guy very likely did not have the sort of leprosy that comes to mind when you hear that word. More likely, he suffered from something like a severe form of psoriasis, perhaps eczema, some sort of atopic dermatitis, some sort of pox-forming disease, something like that. Now, why do I say that? Well, really, it boils down to a translation issue. Um, Really quick, a little bit of crowd engagement. In our English language, we have a word that's sort of a catch-all for skin conditions. Can someone tell me what it is? Rash. Yes, well done. Plus 10 points. They're arbitrary and don't matter. Um, So similarly, in Greek, they had a word that was a catch-all, and that word was lepra. 
Now, most of us know that the New Testament was written in Greek, and there was a fairly popular Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so can you guess what word they used to talk about the skin diseases of Leviticus 13 and 14 and the skin disease we see now on this man in Luke chapter 5? Lepra. Well done. Okay, plus 20 points. Okay, so... That's why it seems like there's so much biblical teaching with respect to leprosy, even though none of us have really come across a leper, which would be Hansen's disease. I don't need, that was on the cutting room floor. We're leaving it alone. Um, and in case you somehow think that, that this was an ancient thing to be obsessed with these skin conditions, I would just urge you, next time you're watching some sort of sporting event, just pay attention to how many commercials there are for therapeutics dealing with psoriasis, eczema, atopic dermatitis, lupus, any number, one, any number of these skin conditions, we're just as concerned about it as they were. So everyone, everyone good with this so far, right? Like, yeah, some nods would be nice, okay. Um, because this, Lord willing, that's hopefully the boringest part of this sermon, uh, but, but it's necessary to understand in order to get the symbolism of what we're going to be talking about here correct, okay? So what was it about these discoloring, lesional, oozing skin conditions that captured the biblical imagination. Now, the little scenario I painted here at the very beginning was essentially taken from Leviticus 13 and 14, and I don't want to speak for all of us, but as far as ancient priestly tech manuals go, Leviticus is my personal favorite. (laughs) Yours too, I guess. (laughs) And the scenario I described was, was roughly speaking the ritualistic practice of restoring someone to community and to sacred space after they were healed of a skin condition. Now, again, what was it about these skin conditions that demanded such a ritual? You know, when it comes to the book of Leviticus, largely speaking, this is like an interpretive key. Let me, let me give you guys, next time, if you love reading Leviticus like I do, this is going to help you, okay? Here are the things that make you unfit for sacred space, the things that make you unclean. These are things that will keep you away from the presence of God. They were things associated with disorder, decay, and death. Now imagine for a moment you touch a dead body. You're unclean. You touch some sort of bodily fluid that's connected with the rhythms of life and death. Man, this is really bad. Okay. You are unclean. Does that still sound okay to everybody? I'm just like, okay, cool. Thanks, Beck. Imagine you have a skin condition with discolored, oozing sores where you see the breakdown of that part of your body that holds all the stuff that keeps you alive on the inside. That barrier gets disrupted. The persistent agony and pain that scream to you all day long that all is not right with the world, and there's nothing you can do about it. These skin conditions, they represented the incursion of death on God's good world. And so for the imaginative world of the ancient Hebrew, which just happens to be the imaginative world that informs our Bibles, the symbols of death shall not approach the presence of the author of life. We protect the domain of God's presence from the domain of death. Death has no place in God's presence. And so we have here, suddenly... A man that the text says is full of leprosy. He's full of the symbols of death, and he's drawing near to whom? 
You know, Luke is about to make it real obvious for us. He's going to lay it on super thick that Jesus is one and the same with the author of life. And so as this leper comes crawling up to that boundary, he asks Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand, it says in verse 13, and touched him. I will be clean. And immediately, immediately, the leprosy left him. Now hopefully you can see some of the significance of the symbolism here, but let's draw some of it out. First off, can you guys see the ancient logic behind why lepers had to, I guess we'd call it socially distance now, isolate, quarantine, whatever. Now, this is, this is by far the worst analogy I've ever shared from up here. But death is like a cup of chocolate pudding, and the world is your toddler in a white t-shirt. <laughs> Give the toddler the pudding, and what do you end up with? You end up with a brown shirt <laughs> all of a sudden, and a perplexed wife. I don't know what she has to do with the analogy. But in our experience, what happens? Chaos and death spread all the way out to the boundaries. Now, how much of our inner lives are preoccupied with coping with the chaos, with trying to keep it at bay? Now, in a similar way, this was at the heart of the instruction from Moses to stay away from death. Haggai, the prophet, questions the priests of his day, asking them if holy meat can make someone clean through contact. The answer here is no. So cleanliness is not infectious under the law. Can someone who has touched a dead body, he goes on to say, make someone else clean, or make someone else unclean? Answer, yes. So uncleanness is infectious under the law. I mean, this is all intro to Leviticus sort of stuff, Leviticus 101. Now, the Apostle Paul, commenting on the role of the law in Galatians 3, said that the law was our schoolmaster teaching us centuries-long object lessons to the people of Israel. And cruel as it may have seemed, the law confined this man to isolation. It gave instructions on how to restore him if, by God's grace, he happened to be healed of his disease. But the law did not give instructions on how to heal a man. One might justifiably conclude that the law, good as it is, is incapable of cleansing a leper. The law cannot raise someone from the dead. The law kept this man in isolation. Moral effort could not remove this man's shame. Shame. I've had lots of conversations over the years with believers trying to parse out the difference between guilt and shame. One of the reasons it's so hard is we live in a more guilt-based culture than a shame-based culture. But one of the biggest differences, just for your guys' own knowledge here, is that shame has this undeniable social component to it. Shame has to do with a sense of exclusion, with not measuring up, with not contributing your share, or perhaps bringing some sort of dishonor on your name, your family, your culture, your company. It's, it has an undeniable social dynamic to it, even if it's something you feel internally. Now, there's one thing you should know about lepers under the law of Moses. Being unclean was not considered being sinful. 
Let me say that again. Being unclean was not the same thing as being considered sinful. It was representative, for sure, of the effects of sin, but it was not sinful itself. In other words, as far as this leprosy was concerned, this man did nothing wrong. And yet, he's excluded from society, unable to perform his ritualistic duties, And in that ancient Mediterranean context, he would have brought shame to his family, to himself. You know, the man comes to Jesus and he perceives something about the power of Jesus. But two things to notice about this request. First off, he's not asking about Jesus' ability. He's asking about Jesus' desire. And second, he doesn't ask Jesus to heal him, but if he will make him clean. Will you, Jesus, remove this shame? Remove this dishonor? Will you remove this humiliation from me? And Jesus touches him. And he becomes clean. The laws of Moses could not make a leper clean. It could only show you that you were unclean. So you have to go to the prophetic visions to see what's happening here. Now one of those, in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah in a vision, in his imagination, where is he? He's brought into the holy of holies. He's standing in front of the most sacred of sacred spaces, and he sees the Lord, the Holy One, with his train, the train of his robe, filling the temple. And what is Isaiah's reaction? I mean, he recognizes, I am not a priest, so I should not be in the temple, and I am not the high priest, so I especially shouldn't be in the holy of holies. So he cries out, woe is me, I am lost. I am not supposed to be here, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And what's the very next thing that happens? An angelic being frighteningly comes at him with a white hot coal. (laughs) If you're in Isaiah's shoes, you think you're about to die in the Holy of Holies. And yet, in the Holy of of holies, in the domain of God, in the domain of life, what happens? The coal touches his lips, and he's cleansed. He's infected with cleanness. Now, another vision from another prophet, and bear with me here, this did not make the cutting room floor, I just love this. This is, this is, this is the stuff that just gets me going, so bear with me here. Ezekiel chapter 47, another vision, another imaginative vision from the prophet Ezekiel. A stream is flowing out from the holy space, and it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And as Ezekiel surveys this landscape, he sees life springing up on the borders of the sacred water. He sees the water flowing out from God's presence, the water of life flowing into the Dead Sea. And what happens? The Dead Sea, the Dead Sea, becomes an Eden of life. In other words, the life of God flows out of the temple into this death-infected world and brings about a great reversal. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus introduces his ministry by quoting the pinnacle of the prophetic hope from the prophet Isaiah, and he says, today, today has this been fulfilled in your hearing. 
This leper stands before Jesus, stands before the one who's greater than the prophets. He stands before the true temple, and he tells him, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus touches him, and the unclean becomes clean, and the clean remains unstained. Or does he? Let's bookmark that thought. Now, <clears throat> let's get to some application here. Now, there's, there's a whole lot of different directions we could go here, but I want to I think of two. First, now I mentioned that this man's shame was not on account of some sin that he committed. Certainly there's a type of shame that, shame that goes along with that, but it was on account of something that had happened to him. Now, I am near certain that this could describe any number of you in here today. Someone did something to you. Something happened to you that you had no control over, and, so, and yet you carry with you this tremendous amount of shame on account of it. You know, Jesus, he could have easily, he could have easily uh, cleansed this man with a word. He could have cleansed him with a thought, but he healed him with a touch. A display not just of his power, but of his grace. And even though we as modern Westerners get the warm and fuzzies thinking about, oh, it's so sweet that he would touch the man. I want to say in an honor-shame culture like the Middle East, the honor, the honor that Jesus shows this man by touching him says more than any words ever could. And so he's showing anyone who is watching that if he has touched your life, then you have, you, have no, you have nothing to be ashamed of anymore. Not, not things from your past, not things you've done, not things that have happened to you. The gospel gives us far more in terms of honor, grace, and cleansing, and healing than we can possibly comprehend. And as you take this reality from the outside into your hearts more and more, you will find the power to deal with your shame. In this way, the touch of Jesus heals the inner life by removing the shame of exclusion, by having God adopt you into his family as beloved sons and daughters. You're brought back into community, not because you could finally measure up, but because he reached down into your life and raised you from the dead. You are no longer excluded, but brought into community. And that's the second application, community, and quickly here. I mean, for all of us who've believed in Jesus, who've asked him, well, if you will, you can make me clean, and have believed and experienced his cleansing power, we are now, we are the new temple. We have become his transformative agents in this world. And that means that we can accept anybody here regardless of what they've gone through or are going through, regardless of the shameful, shameful things they've done or have been done to them, their shame will not transmit to us in any meaningful way. If we become the type of community that lives in the power and the love of Christ, then we become small rivers that distribute honor, mercy, and life to a shame-filled and death-infected world around us. Whoever believes in me, said Jesus in John chapter 7, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I will. This is why community is important. Because there might be someone in your life group right now for whom that first application point just sent 
a shockwave through their system, through their inner being. And they are going to need you to walk alongside them to work out what it means to apprehend the honor given to us by Christ in the gospel so that they can live free from the chains of shame. A community that lives this out becomes restorative and appealing. I mean, certainly in verse 14, Jesus restores this man to community. He tells him to go be reintegrated by going and seeing the priest. The result of that restoration we see in verse 15 is that people from all over start looking for Jesus. And so, a brief sidebar here. Um, What is Jesus' response to the crowds? Verse 16, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Now, Josh Breffel took us through Jesus' prayer life about two weeks ago, but Luke thought it was worth mentioning Jesus' prayer life again, and so I guess I do too. Briefly, uh, Luke does not spend as much time talking about the inner life of Jesus as the other Gospels do. Now Mark, for instance, in his parallel account of the cleansing of this leper, prior to cleansing him, it says that Jesus was moved with compassion. The hurting masses come to Jesus, and is it too much for us to imagine that Jesus was tempted to move away from his primary mission? I mean, we'll find out in the next story that Jesus is fully God, but in his full humanity here, does his inner life need some strengthening? And so Jesus looks for external help. He prays to his Father, certainly, for guidance and probably inner strength. Now, there's a, there's a good word in here for us. I mean, when you get to imagining what each day has in store for you, what does it do to your inner life? Are you anxious, conflicted, tempted? I mean, certainly Jesus was tempted in all these areas. And so what else can I say than, uh, than you know, can you find those desolate places in your life and turn them into sacred spaces of communion with God? And can you find a desolate place on your commute to work? Can you find it as you walk your dog? Can you find it by asking your spouse to just give you a Saturday morning to be alone? Can you or do you make space for God to do a work in your inner life? Because it's crucial that we do. It certainly was crucial for Jesus. So we move to Jesus' confrontation with guilt. This will be slightly quicker, but not by much. We see Jesus recentered on the most important things now. He goes back to his teaching ministry. Luke 5.17 says, On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Now this is the first mention, the first mention of the Pharisees and scribes in Luke's gospel. They came from all over to hear this man's teaching, even as far away as Jerusalem. And because Jesus had reconnected his inner life via the Father, it says the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Now, verses 18 and 19. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. Now, having spent some time talking about shame here, I can't help but admire the lack of shame that these men display. Now, 
Don't get me wrong here. There is a counterfeit way to deal with shame that our culture embraces that says you just need to actualize yourself and forget about what anyone else thinks of you. And then we sit around here wondering why there's so many narcissists around, but that's a message for another time. These men are not compelled by some desire to actualize themselves. They are compelled by love for a friend. And true love will always overcome shame. In this case, true love had a habit of tearing the roof off of places. And so they climb the stairs of the house where Jesus is teaching, and in love, they make a total mess of things. Because they realize that their friend's only hope is Jesus. Now, now I, I, have, I have to comment on this. I have to comment on this, right? Because this is why Christianity's always been an outgoing faith. I mean, if you've seen Jesus for who he is, if you've seen him in your inner being full of love and mercy and grace and power, and you realize that he's not only your only hope, but he's the hope of the whole world. I mean, let's put it this way. Seeing Christ as one option among many is not seeing Christ at all. Again, bigger message for another time. But if he has changed your life, if he has changed your inner life the way he has changed mine, you can't help but acknowledge that he, when he said that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, you realize that that logic holds pretty tight, and you are compelled by outward acts of love and mercy towards, uh, and words of conviction and power to a world that needs to hear it. Awkward as it may be, you will find the desire in your heart to tear the roof off of a conversation in order to get your friends to Christ. And can't you imagine yourself in that room now? I mean, what do you see? The Pharisees sitting there, intrigued, concerned, perhaps critical of this new teacher whose accreditation, let's just say, is questionable. What do they see? I mean, they certainly see a potential threat to their influence and power, which is why they've come from all over to see him. The crowds, what do they see? They see that their earthly afflictions might have some resolution in this new miracle worker. There's, that's certainly what the paralytic and his friends saw in Jesus, but because of the crowds, they couldn't see Jesus himself. And so in that room, in your imagination, you sit pensively as Jesus responds to the Pharisees' probing questions. And then you see a little dirt trickle down from the roof. <clears throat> then you hear some commotion from above you. Then you suddenly see a hole open up in one of the tiles. And then you see in place of one of the tiles comes a man haphazardly wrapped up by his friends in some harebrained contraption to try and get him down in the midst of the crowd. Dirt is falling from the roof. Everyone is looking at Jesus, and Jesus is looking at the man lowered down, and what does Jesus see? Jesus looks at the paralytic and his friends, and he perceives a light in their eyes. Verse 20, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now what you and everyone else in that room could have seen pretty obviously, is that is not why they brought the paralytic to Jesus. <laughs> like, obvious to everyone in the room. Now, worth noting here, again, another first mention, this is the first mention of faith in Luke's Gospel. Now, it's common to think, uh, to think that you know exactly what Jesus needs to do in order to fix the problems in your life. You just tell him what to do, and he'll do it, right? 
I mean, it could be that you think you need him to fix your marriage, to fix your finances, to fix your misfortunes, to fix your health. I don't know. But Jesus has his own priorities. And honestly, I, I don't know what a state, like Jesus has his own priorities. I don't know what that does to your inner life, but I know that all of us have various circumstances, and for some of you, that just, that just tears you up on the inside. But Jesus knows how to approach each one of us. And that's because at the root of this external dysfunction, whether it's relational dysfunction, bodily dysfunction, societal dysfunction, behavioral dysfunction, at its root is the fact that there is a great dysfunction at the heart of our relationship with our Creator. And that is the dysfunction that Jesus primarily came to fix. Now I'm reminded of, oh man, this is, this is honestly one of the worst interactions I've had after a service at the crossing. And this is, this is years ago. Uh, there was this new couple here, very first time. So I tried to be nice and, and get to know them. The guy here, he's tall, shaved head, big goatee, probably blue collar. And I'm just getting nowhere with him. Like you've heard about conversations where it's like pulling teeth. This was like pulling teeth and getting kicked in the shin at the same time. After asking a handful of pretty simple get-to-know-you type questions, he just turns to me and responds with, why do you ask so many questions? It's like me asking you, why do you wear your shirt that way? Why do you talk so much? Why is the sun so bright? <laughs> like, so, so mean, so mean. <laughs> In so many words, he's asking me, what is your problem? And so I lied to him and said, it's been nice talking to you. <laughs> And since I have the inner life of a middle child, I wandered away wondering what I did wrong and briefly considered a vow of silence. <laughs> now months, maybe years go by, and I'm speaking at one of our sister churches, High Plains Harvest, and this man walks in, tall, shaved head, big goatee, probably blue collar. And I think, don't I know you from somewhere? The man proceeds to be like one of the most winsome, jovial, gregarious, outgoing people in the congregation. And I'm like, I guess not. <laughs> a couple weeks later, I meet up with him again at the Crossway Men's Retreat, and I actually connect with this guy at a pretty deep level. I talk to his pastor, Mark Hotelling, and he says, I have to tell you this guy's story. Apparently, some time ago, he and his wife were experiencing some deep relationship issues. They figure, well, let's go to church, see if that'll fix it for us. They go to High Plains one morning, but because some renovations or something like that are happening at the building, High Plains is worshiping with the crossing. And so this couple gets in the car, they drive from Alt out to Fort Collins, and I'm listening to the story, and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I do know this guy. Through the course of counseling, it becomes pretty apparent that this man was not a believer, and so Mark and others within the church, they took it upon themselves to minister the gospel to this guy over and over and over again. And then one day, it clicks. He recognizes that he's guilty before God and that all of his attempts to either ignore it, to ignore that inner ache of guilt, or his striving at self-justification had only made him an angry man. And he was so angry with me that day, guys. <laughs> so angry. I wish there was time to share more of the story because there, there are way more complexities to it than that. But the point here is that I didn't recognize the man because he had been transformed. He came to Jesus with an external circumstance, but Jesus proceeded to change his inner life. And now, he could walk. He could walk free from the chains of guilt. And honest to goodness, honest to goodness, I swear I saw a light in his eyes. 
And Jesus perceives the light of faith in the paralytic. Then he turns and sees something else in the Pharisees. Verse 21, And the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? The Pharisees, their logic, eh, their logic, logic is pretty tight, pretty good, pretty on point. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus isn't concerned with their logic, though. Jesus perceives their inner lives, and their inner lives matter to him. And in this case, the darkness of their inner lives troubles him and moves him to a display of power. He continues in verse 23 and asks, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you or rise and walk? I was actually driving with Emmy earlier this week. I was like, Dad's preaching on this passage. You want to listen to it? She goes, sure. We listen to it. We get to this question, and I just hear Emmy from the back seat go, rise and walk. That's easier to say. I'm like, oh, all right. Turn off the radio. I'm like, all right. Why do you say that? So I'm thinking to myself, like, this is going to be such a good sermon illustration. Like, I can't wait to, to do this. I mean, out of the mouths of babes. Out of the mouths of babes. I anxiously await my daughter's answer, certain it will be filled with childlike faith. And she says to me, the words, like the words, rise and walk, they're easier for me to say. (laughs) And so given, given, like your sins are forgiven you is an awkward way to say things in English. (laughs) But it is the easier thing to say, right? Because how do you prove it? Like I tell you, your sins are forgiven you. Much harder to say to a paralytic, rise and walk. Someone might actually expect something to happen afterwards, right? But to vindicate his authority, Jesus turns to the crowd, and we read in verses 24 and 25, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been laying on and went home glorifying God. Now, there's certainly some teaching here about the effective nature of God's word and authority. Two stories back to back where Jesus commands a leper's cleansing and commands a paralytic's walking and the dysfunctional disorder of this world listen to his voice. I've already mentioned that this story has the first mention of the Pharisees. It also has the first mention of faith. And now we have the first mention of the Son of Man. And Jesus is the only one in all of Scripture who calls himself that. Now don't worry. Don't worry. I'm not going to go into all of the details. Just a couple. I've preached on Daniel 7 in the past. And if, if you, I've teased out this whole idea of the Son of Man there. And if that's something you're curious about, I will happily connect it with you because it is one of the handful of sermons I've preached that I don't now hate with the fiery passion of a thousand sons. But suffice it to say, the Son of Man is a perfect human. He is whole. He is complete. He is sinless. And he receives a throne in Daniel 7. And it becomes clear that he is a perfect human being. And to be a perfect human being means that you perfectly are the image of God. Now that's part of what this whole passage is about, right? Like who can forgive sins but God alone? The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. What does that mean about the identity of this Son of Man other than that he is no mere man? 
Notice the contrast here. God, it, uh, Jesus, God in human flesh, the complete human, standing over a man whose condition cries out for completion. And so how does the Son of Man use his authority here? With a word, he displays authority and power through mercy and healing. What does that display tell you about the inner life of God? Now, in terms of guilt, we've all violated God's law. You know, we've failed to love him as we ought. We've committed sins of omission, not doing what we're supposed to do, and sins of commission, flagrantly doing the things that we're not supposed to do. In other words, we have, all of us, put ourselves and our preferences on the throne and created so much chaos, disorder, and destruction in God's world. And as a sidebar, that's actually what most of Daniel 7 is about as well. The wrong people are trying to get on the throne. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that we know that we're guilty. Internally, Freud, of all people, said that guilt was inescapable. Even if we try to suppress it, either by ignoring God or by trying to justify ourselves through our work, our physical fitness, our attractiveness, or whatever, or just by trying to psychologize it away, as so many do and Freud himself would do. And what do you find when you try to deal with your guilt in these ways? You find that you're still paralyzed. You don't know how to deal with your own guilt, and therefore, you don't know how to deal with the guilt of others. Now, I've been thinking about this for the better part of a year, but is there, is there anything more central to the message of Christ other than that your sins can be forgiven? That your guilt can be taken away? Now, I, I want to try and bring everything together here. I told you to bookmark a thought earlier, right? Like the clean man touched the unclean man, and the clean man remained clean, or, or did he? Jesus asks here, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or rise and walk. And I think my daughter was actually right with her answer, but for the wrong reasons. Jesus was able to heal this man's legs with a word. But what did Jesus have to do to secure this man's forgiveness and heal his soul? What did Jesus have to do to ensure that the unclean leper could truly approach the presence of God? The Son of Man in Daniel 7, though he receives a crown and glory and honor and a throne, he is also persecuted and trampled by the powers of darkness, chaos, and death. These stories in Luke's Gospel about Jesus, they're all going somewhere. They are leading us to the cross. God allows the powers of darkness unleashed in this world by human sin, the sin in my life, the sin in your life, and he allows those powers to exhaust themselves on his son. God takes the abuses of power, the lies, the shameful deeds done in darkness, the betrayals, the backstabbing, the infidelity, the violence, the slander, the anger, the hatred, the pride, the selfishness, the abuse and misuse of sexuality. He takes all of those things that the headlines of our news feeds tell us about and that our world has no idea how to deal with, and he places them on his son. And his son is taken outside the city gates. He's carted away like an unclean leper to the hilltop of death. And God takes death itself and he puts it on Jesus and he exhausts its power on him. I mentioned earlier, reflecting on the paralytic's friends, that true love overcomes shame and sometimes it tears off roofs. 
God's true love overcomes our shame and tears the roof off of the cosmos to lower his son down here, not so he can be healed, but so that he can give healing and eternal life to the world. Shame and guilt create so much tension in our inner lives because we cannot get rid of them by ourselves. And I want to say this. Jesus is here. He is here. He is here right now, looking for a different type of paralytic to raise. He's here now, looking for a different type of leper to cleanse. He is here right now, ready to deal with your shame, to deal with your guilt, and to bring you back into right relationship with God himself. Because after God laid all of those things on Jesus, Jesus was put in a grave. And when Jesus was raised, he had a new body, no longer affected by death and sin, incapable of ever being contaminated again. Because all that shame, all that guilt, all that chaos, all that death stayed buried. And this is how you deal with guilt and shame. God takes the external realities of our guilt and our shame, He puts them on Jesus, and He puts it to death. This is how He heals our inner lives, by reconnecting us with resurrected power so that we might walk as new, free men and women. The world has no answers for guilt and shame, just coping mechanisms. And so by faith, let us the Crossing Church, reaffirm these truths to one another and go out into this world in a renewed power that allows us to display His love, His power, His forgiveness to a lost and hurting world. And if you are still part of that lost and hurting world, and it, or perhaps if your imagination as a believer has not really been captured by Christ all that much recently, let me suggest something to you. I invite you to consider the man at the beginning of our story. Give yourself some time in solitude, perhaps seven days, perhaps not. You can go in your house if you'd like to. But if you find yourself asking at the end of those seven days, after you've been dealing with God, after you've been dealing with your own inner life, you ask yourself, what will I do now? I suppose you might reply to yourself that I can come back next week because we will be here, ready to receive you, to love you, and to help you see the goodness of the one who sacrificed all for us so that we could receive all of him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, my words are mere words unless your spirit is here. The power of the Lord was with him that day to heal. Would you do an act of healing in the inner lives of the people here this morning? cleansing us of our shame, forgiving us our guilt, and showing us once again that you are who you said you are and that you will do what you said you came to do. Be with us now as we take these elements. Help us to comprehend these things, to love these things, and to be transformed by these things. For we ask this all in Jesus' name.